0: Welcome to the Wheels Up podcast, the resource to help business, executive, and VIP travelers stay safe on the ground and in the air. Join executive protection and travel security specialist, Troy Clayton, as he shares tips on how to give yourself or those in your care a safe journey, no matter where your travels take you.
1: Welcome back to the Wheels Up podcast, the only podcast out there specifically designed for you, our listener, whether you're a corporate high flyer, a person of influence, or a security industry professional wanting to know more about what's on offer and what's available in some of the specialist fields. We cover topics relating to travel safety and security, executive protection, corporate security, international risk assessments, country briefs, and health and well-being. We have expert guests from across the security, defense, and consulting sectors. I'm your host, Troy Clayton from Penoptic Solutions, and before we get into it, Don't forget to go to iTunes or your podcast platform, give us a rating and leave a comment. The more stars, the easier it is for our followers to find us and the more comments that you provide us with, it helps us better understand what it is you want to hear. Now let's get straight into it. So this is the second and final part of the, well, with my talk with uh, Narelle Atkins, uh, where we'll pick up where she returned to Australia after her uh, military career. And her return from Iraq. If you want to hear about uh, that part of her life, go back to episode one uh, and catch up from there, and then you can listen to this one. So I want to move to move forward to your your return to Australia. So you you have a son. Uh, you obviously wanted to come home and spend time uh, with with him. Uh, you remarried. In fact, you you uh, in fact a former colleague of mine, Paul, who was on the same contract as myself, um, who. Uh, while we're talking about, I'll, I'll actually say he was someone that I looked to while I was over there. You know, he had qualities to you know, to strive to be like. He was a very carefree kind of guy, a very competent operator uh, coming from a police tactical group, um, and he always had this good disposition and relationship with their local for- workforce. Um, pretty strong, re- you know, pretty strong leadership qualities. Um, certainly, don't tell him that because he'll get a big hit, big head. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, you know, you, you came back to sort of. Settle into normality, I guess, in inverted commas, normality. But then you, you know, you were off to work on Christmas Island at one of the immigration um, centres over there. Uh, Can you tell us a bit about that? You know, how how did that come about and what position you went over to do and, and I guess the decision making behind all that?
0: Yeah. Um, So when I returned to Australia, I moved over to Perth with my son um, and married Paul. And I guess for the next few years I kind of stuffed around with different jobs. I tried being a stay-at-home mum for a while and um, it got a little bit like, well, I don't want to say boring, but it's like I wasn't being professionally challenged anymore. Sure. I went back to being a an officer in a reserve unit and but I found that it didn't have that, I didn't have that same level of motivation and enthusiasm that I'd had prior to going to Iraq. I, um, I worked as a transit guard. I worked in a pub, but nothing was kind of doing it. It it was hard adjusting and finding something that made you feel like you were doing a, a good job. Then I, um, I was just trolling through SEEK one day and found a job as an operations manager on Christmas Island. And I thought, I wonder what they do. Because I'd heard about Christmas Island as in the red crab migration and beautiful tropical um, island. Mm. Um, And then I found out it held the immigration detention centres and I looked at what was required for the job and I thought, you know, in the army, I'm I'm trained to run a prisoner of war facility. We have our own military prisons. Surely, if I've got the skills to do those jobs, I I could I could also work as an as an immigration detention centre manager. There's transferable skills there. Um, at the time, I didn't know or care or anything about refugees or boat people. Or, I had no idea about the situation. Or anything, I just thought, oh, this looks like a good job where I could use my skills. Yep. So I told Paul about it, and he seemed interested. We both were quite happy to move to Christmas Island, so we applied and we got the jobs. And um, and wow, what a next couple of intense years that was! <laughs> so,
1: all right? What, what when you say intense? Yeah, things, yeah. What, what, so, what about?
0: well. I, I guess we didn't really know what we were stepping into, but we assumed that there'd be some policies and procedures, and we'd just um, they'd just tell us what we needed to do, and everything would just be smooth running. But it wasn't. They'd only just um, got the contract. They were still developing their policies and procedures. The centres were bursting at the seams. There was constant yeah. boat arrivals. There were incidents. There was. Um, uh, contract requirements there was lots of different key stakeholders that you had to deal with on a daily basis and it was just it was intense I think the first three months I worked there I, um, I, I were they were basically a blur you were just learning so much and doing so much
1: it's it, I mean it sounds like a very complex environment to be working with
0: Oh, extremely complex because um, you're dealing with staff saying there's not enough staff to do the job. You've got immigration officials saying, well, we don't have enough accommodation, so we've got nowhere to house more staff. If you get more staff, you've got um, the actual centre bursting at the seams. They're asking for more toasters or industrial toasters, but the power grid system doesn't support industrial toasters, so you just have those little... Twenty-dollar ones breaking down all the time. It was just uh, a mess. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, and 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 I guess all of that was coming back here to Australia. So I mean, we were getting reports uh, through obviously all the news cha- news channels because that, that, that I guess at, at that particular time, um, you know, refugees and immigration and whatnot was at the forefront of the uh, political um, sphere. I guess, and it was it was a bit of a soccer ball to just get back and forth from from both sides of uh, politics and certainly i guess the rest of the world was seeing that as well you know and there there seemed to be a a large amount of media stories reporting on how bad and i use that inverted commas i mean you'd know better than i were i I do but um you know how bad the conditions were for asylum seekers for you know immigrants refugees whichever term you want to use you know the, the conditions themselves. Can you tell us a little bit about the conditions and and what the processes were for for those that were arriving?
0: Yeah. So when when they arrived, they would be processed at a separate centre. Um, their property would be taken and itemised. There was um, they'd go undergo health checks, initial identity checks, and then they would be allocated to a centre. So. Um, there was a family camp which housed uh, families, women, and unaccompanied minors. And then you had two male centres, and one of the centres, or the main centre, was called Northwest Point. So when new arrivals came, they would be housed in a a large marquee. So we're talking a large tent with, say, I don't know, 50 beds in their bunk beds. And then you'd have a demountable toilet and showering system. There would be uh, laundry facilities and hot box meals delivered um, three times a day. So um, the, the longer they stayed in the center, when beds became available, they'd be moved to say the education unit, which was once again, similar setup, up, but this time it was actually in a building. Or an education room obviously the education classes um, couldn't go on while they were in those rooms and as they progress through the system they may get allocated a room in a compound that they would share with someone um, and so there was a, um, a system within the detention center um, for someone to eventually get a room with one other person but it, it took quite some time before they would be there mm. and um, you know, whilst the centre was would have been absolutely amazing had there been, you know, a third of the number of people that were there, due to the, um, the large numbers of people coming in and in the centre, it, nothing worked. So consequently, um, you could clean the toilets, say, in the morning and by lunchtime they would be atrocious again, you know, mm-hmm. mud trodden through the floors, that kind of thing.
1: Okay. So, I guess primarily the overcrowding was was the biggest issue that you had there
0: yeah, yeah, without a doubt, because it created then incidents, and when you've got lots of different races, lots of different beliefs and cultures and religions all stuck together in a in a crowded situation, mm. it was just a a um, a pot that was ready to boil over
1: yeah, well, I mean. That would certainly be a, a security or safety and security issue then
0: yeah and and that was the other problem is that we weren't allowed to turn on say the electrified fences so if someone wanted to escape it was as simple as climbing over a fence and and running into the bushes mm-hmm. um, yeah um, you you couldn't you couldn't punish a um, any anyone that was in there so there was no consequences for actions uh which then you know if you can get away with stuff then you get away with stuff because you knew that there was no repercussions on you we couldn't even use force to stop a person from wielding a cricket bat in the the main green heart or the main um oval i guess of, of the center we had to talk them down everything was negotiate negotiate talk talk which is very time consuming and um yeah yeah, we just were not permitted to use any force
1: yeah and i guess not just that like you know from all the reports that i've heard and obviously you know we keep area to the ground and we know that a lot of the security personnel over there were either ex-defense or ex-law enforcement um primarily that you know that, that wasn't everyone but certainly you know you you know, a few of the guys and people that go over, um, you know, I was, you know, we, we've we've been told that, you know, some of the, some of the situations were quite dangerous um, and that they, they felt like their hands were tied in, in regards to how they could respond. And I mean, I'm just talking about the, you know, talking people down, you know, most of these, you know, defence personnel, I guess, aren't really trained in, I guess, negotiating with, you know, uh, asylum seekers and immigrants. So how does, how does that all work?
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, it, it was really difficult. And, you know, I, f- I found myself in situations, you know, I'm, where one of them was an asylum secret climbed up the top of the Sallyport area and wanted to jump and, and hurt himself. And no, one knew what to do that suddenly I'm getting pulled out of a meeting. Oh, there's a guy who wants to jump. And um, I'm not trained in negotiation or anything like that. And as as lame as it may sound, I had to rely on every cop and negotiator movie and TV show that I'd ever watched to try and talk this guy down. And in the end, it was just lots of words and going, oh, I think they try and build a a bond with them. And uh, I'm... Doing everything in my power to talk this guy down and he does eventually come down yeah. but um yeah that was the actual reality of it is that yeah unfortunately um, people weren't equipped with that skill
1: yeah look I mean we, we sort of have a bit of a, a chuckle about it but certainly I mean it's I mean it's it's a it's a it's a crazy situation to be put in uh that you know you're in these um you know these facilities that are set up for you know those that are arriving, yet no training is set aside to 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 be able to to deal with that. So that is a, certainly a, it would have been a stressful environment to work in.
0: Oh it, yeah, it, incredibly stressful. I mean, their basic course just comprised getting like a certificate to in security. Mm. Um, it wasn't as though um, they conducted. How to, how to talk to people, like, <laughs> quite in-depth. I mean, every security course you talk, you taught a little bit of conflict negotiation, but mm. this, this was absolutely to the next level, um, yeah. without a doubt.
1: Yeah. Now, there was an incident which uh, was described as a, a major tragedy which occurred in July of 2012, which uh, on Christmas Island where, you know, a, a human trafficking or a people smuggler's boat come aground. Uh, on the cliffs there. I believe there were 50 killed uh, and 33 others injured. Were you there at that time that this occurred?
0: Um, yeah, I was there. It was actually uh, December 2010 when it, when it happened. I was getting mm-hmm. ready nice. for work and, right. yeah, and um, one of my officers rang me and said, oh, my goodness, there's a um, refugee boat. It's about to crash into the cliffs. Um, what do I do? I said, All right, I'll I'll call the police straight away. So I, I called the police and um made my way down to down to the area and it had already crashed by the time I got there and there were um when I arrived there were people in the water, there were people hanging on to the wreckage of the boats. You could see the navy trying to rescue and pull people out of the water, but the seas were just so rough. You could hear the bo- the um the engines on the boats just just labouring in the water. Um, um. At some point, though, myself and a few others went around to the other side of the island because that's where the navy were um, delivering the survivors, but also the bodies of those that had passed. So, um, my husband, myself, and a couple of other Um, circo workers Um, yeah we actually received the survivors and took them to a reception type area and we also had to retrieve the dead bodies from from the navy and and place them into body bags so that they could get um, transported to the morgue there on the island so Mm -hmm. It was, um, yeah, a pretty intense day. One kind of filled with like absolute horror that you're placing a body in a bag and then at some points there was joy to, you know, to see um, some of the survivors and and how thankful and um, um, their reactions at um, being received by us.
1: And how long long did that drag out for? I mean, I'm sure it felt like, forever that that particular day but did you know was it prolonged over the uh, several hours or
0: oh yeah yeah it went all day like um uh, we must have finished at about i don't know five o'clock something like that in the afternoon and that's after working all day so we um we we all went home and then went down to the local tavern there um to have a few drinks and kind of decompress after after such a massive day
1: yeah a horrific day i guess um
0: and then um get some sleep and turn up to work the next day
1: so was there yeah right so there was there any sort of process after that like i mean you said you, you just you had a drink and then all of a sudden you you're rocking up to work the next day i mean i know that everything has to continue on and i guess at some stage well throughout all this as well you know you also had the responsibility of the other um uh, the attendees uh, I guess I'm not too sure what to call them uh, I don't want to call them inmates but certainly attendees of the uh, of the camp so you've got that responsibility going on plus this tragedy that's occurring I mean how did how did you balance that too?
0: Um, well I in a way I was quite fortunate at the time because when the tragedy happened I was working as the security manager so I was able to shut myself into an office all by myself with no one else around, because it was separate from the rest of the administration area and just do my job and I guess think about what was going on. I didn't actually have to go and manage a centre. However, um, um, Paul and I, because all of those detainees or all the survivors were, were brought and housed, in one particular area, separate from all the other detainees in the centre, mm. we we made a point of going and visiting them and, and making sure they were all right and talking to a few key people that we established relationships with during the day. Um, but, yeah, over the coming days and weeks, s- incidents, that they didn't stop. So... Um, we very soon found ourselves caught up. There was something else to take the place of the boat tragedy, mm. um, as as sad as that may sound, but there was always a new incident or a new riot or some kind of a disturbance. And then you had to switch from one, one particular incident straight into the next. Um, it, it didn't stop and let you kind of um, process what was happening. Mm. Uh,
1: so was that the catalyst? Do you to call it a day and head home?
0: Um, not the boat tragedy, no. I um, experienced several <laughs> um, riots, you could say, or concerted in disciplines before, before that happened. We had a pretty massive riot in March of 2011 that involved all the, centre, the two main mail centres with um, detainees breaking out and roaming through the township of Christmas Island um, and that, that incident dragged on for about two weeks. And there were several more riots and incidents um, that occurred during that year. And I think it was by the, by the end of that year, you just kind of completely burned and, you know, you're going, you kind of get that attitude where you hate Serco, you hate the immigration officials, you hate the detainees. you You just, tired and you just you, that's when you realize that it's time to move on when yeah. when you start feeling that way about everyone
1: <laughs> Well, was there any support mechanisms put in place for that
0: um well when I um left Christmas Island I continued to work part-time for Serco over here in Perth so and I got to work with the on the project team that was creating the new Yonga Hill facility in Northern. And when I saw that facility and how it was far better equipped and resourced and managed, um, I was dumbfounded that they were doing it so hard on Christmas Island. And then there was this facility where you had a lot of staff, a lot of staff in key positions that we were never allowed to have on Christmas Island, that the facilities were 100% better Mm. And you're like, wow, this, I, I can't believe this, this contrast, mm. um, Such a but the distance was too far to travel. And that's when I, yeah, yeah. And that's when I decided to part ways. Okay.
1: And so you called it a day there and you've since written a book called Mercenary Mum. Can you tell us a bit about that?
0: Yeah. So I, I'd actually written it when I returned from Iraq and it was kind of therapy to, to put all my thoughts and experiences on paper. And by the time I finished working in immigration, I was determined that it wouldn't just be a book sitting in the garage forever, that I actually wanted to get it published. So I, um, I sourced myself a literary agent and working with him, Um, I was eventually able to get the book published and it it pretty much details my life as a kid, Um, some of the experiences I had when I left school and what led me to join the army and then eventually all my adventures in Iraq as a security operator.
1: Fantastic. And how do we get our hands on the book?
0: Well, it's available in all good bookshops and if it's not on the shelf, then you just need to ask them to order it in and they'll get it in in a flash. Otherwise, you can get it off Amazon, iTunes, either as a digital or hardback copy.
1: Yep. I have seen, I still see it in uh, a few shops actually, so it's still kicking about.
0: Awesome. Good yep. to hear.
1: <laughs> uh, and I hear that there are rumours of possibly another book in the winds. Is that, is that true?
0: Yeah, I've been working on book 2 which is all about my time working on Christmas Island as a immigration worker and all the all the events that happened over there from the boat tragedy to the riots to the mundane to the frustrations mm. of it all so it pretty much picks up where mercenary mum finishes I off
1: well, after hearing some of those stories, I think it'll be uh, a really um, interesting read, that's for sure. Thanks. Uh, so you're also doing some keynote speaking. Uh, what are the type of events that you're talking at and, um, you know, what is it you sort of talk about?
0: Yeah, so um, I work with ICMI Speakers Bureau. They they book me for events and um, they can be any kind of event where you want someone to talk about something just a little bit different from your ordinary everyday kind of um story so i've been used um certainly for women's events um but also organizations that want leadership and risk analysis from a different perspective so that that basically details my journey from um a kid to an army officer to a um a member of a security team in Iraq and what I've learned along the way.
1: Fantastic. And and speaking of leadership, uh, you know, you've obviously been a a leader in many aspects of your life, you know, from your your military uh, career, you know, a single parent, to to be honest, which I feel takes a lot of uh, strength and in some respect, uh, some leadership qualities as well. Uh, Contracting work uh, in a very male dominant industry, security manager at a detention centre and now obviously public speaking. What would you say to you know corporate clients or security manager managers or even team leaders who are listening to this about what it makes or what it takes to be a good leader? How do you be a good one?
0: Um, I put it down to a few things, and one of them is lead by example. You also need to listen to your team. Yep. and um, you need to be ethical in all your decision making. Um, leaders make hard decisions Um, they're not necessarily the most popular decisions but decisions that are made for um, the good of the team and the mission that they need to accomplish
1: yeah, that's that's really great advice. Look, I had another question here, but I reckon that's a pretty good one to finish, and I think um, I might call that one there. So, look, Narelle, thanks so much for joining yeah. us today. Uh, it's it's been thoroughly uh, enlightening listening to your story. And to be honest, mate, uh, I feel really fortunate that I've had the chance to work with you in a, you know obviously in a very limited capacity, but you know you've done um, some amazing things since you've uh, well during your military career and since since leaving. So, um, kudos to you, mate um so yeah like i said thanks for joining us
0: oh thanks hey troy it's it's my pleasure and um you know i I thoroughly enjoyed your instruction on the cp course (laughs) you 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 were the nice instructor and um but i I also learned a shitload from you
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, now if people want to reach out to you for corporate speaking how do they how do i do that
0: um, they can go to the ICMI Speakers Bureau website. Otherwise, they can send me a message via Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever, and I can direct them to, to Brad, who generally does all my bookings.
1: Perfect. And we've already spoken about well, they can get mercenary mum any good bookstore, and you can buy it online. Uh, if it's not in the shop, uh, make sure you ask for it. If there's any, uh, do you have any social media pl- sites or platforms that you that you regularly update?
0: Yeah, I'm on the more Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, Google. Uh, all you need to do is put Meryl Joyce into your social media, uh, media platform and I'm sure I'm going to come up there.
1: Perfect. <laughs> we'll stick them up on with the show notes. Mate, say g'day to uh, Paul for me. Uh, again, thanks so much. All the best with all new ventures. Um, and thanks to you, our listeners, uh, for spending time with us. If you like the show, don't forget to go to iTunes or Stitcher or whichever podcast platform you're using. Give us a five-star rating, leave a comment, tell us what you like or what you don't like and uh, see what we can do better. Um, If you want to talk to us about anything security-related, be it travel security, corporate security, emergency management, whatever it is, uh, you can reach the Panoptic Solutions team on info at panopticsolutions.com or our website, panopticsolutions.com. Thanks for listening.
0: See you later, Narelle. See you later. Thanks, Troy. You've been listening to the Wheels Up Podcast with Troy Clayton. For more information, show notes, resources, and subscription options, visit wheelsuppodcast.net. Wheels Up is brought to you by the Experts On Air Podcast Network. Until next time, safe travels.